0: Welcome to the Mama Bear Apologetics Podcast, a podcast where we teach you to roar like a mother. And by roar, we mean recognize the message, offer discernment, argue for a healthier approach, and reinforce these ideas with your kids.
1: Unless you want to growl around your house, I mean, that's cool too. are <laughs> like, check it, we keep it real.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's so bad. You're awesome. Mama Bear Apologetics is a listener-supported program. So if you like what we do, head on over to the Mama Bear Apologetics website and click support. It's time to rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. Welcome to another episode of Mama Bear Apologetics. I'm Hillary. And I'm Amy. Today we're actually going to be going on a slightly different direction than what we normally do. Normally we have a topic that we just sit and discuss, but when I sat down at my computer this morning, I don't know, I don't know if it was the Lord kind of telling me this or if it was my own idea, but there is a talk that is on the internet that I was actually present for. And it's by a man named Simon Brace. Simon is South African. And so you'll notice an accent. And uh, he and my husband were best friends when they were in seminary together, mainly because they, they were workout buddies. And uh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they I'm were the little, yeah, meet, the little meatheads in the seminary, you know, workout room. And uh, Simon was actually supposed to be our best man. But uh, there was a storm that went through on the day he was flying in and they rerouted like six different airports through there. And yeah, he didn't make it. But later on, he did show us the speech that he had intended to give. And it was all about turning it was he used uh, this analogy throughout the entire thing. And the analogy was of ultimate fighting championships. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, that's so perfect. (laughs) It was UFC. And it was it was absolutely perfect. I was rolling on the ground laughing. He's like, I never got to tell it. But I just want to tell you this is what I had planned. And it was long and it was really actually in depth. So. John and he were at uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary together. That was Norm Geisler who had started that. And that was back when Norm Geisler was still teaching there. Their professors were like uh, Norm Geisler, Gary Habermas, wow. uh, Wynne Cordwin. Who else do we have there? Oh, Dr. oh I'm drawing I'm a blank on names. It was, it was a while ago. But anyway, so this talk that we're going to be listening to, and what we're going to do is we're going to stop it occasionally. Is one of the best talks I have ever heard in my life on the use of apologetics as a means of spiritual warfare. When we think of apologetics, our first thought isn't spiritual warfare. It's you know, of course, people always think, oh, it's up there just arguing, and it's 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 a person to person or or idea to idea kind of thing. But we got to look at the number of passages in Scripture that talk about you know, our our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the principalities and. In, something of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, but also about the idea of don't let anyone take you hostage through hollow sounding philosophies, which depend on the traditions of men rather than of God. And so just this idea of if we think that uh, we, we have the demonic that's out there, that's just trying to, you know, scare us like in the movies or just make us do bad things, trying to just get us to drink or, you know, drink or have sex or you know all the things that we assume that oh that's the bad ain't that's that's the bad demon that's trying to get me to, to do that no they are much smarter than we like to give them credit for and they are trying to actively sow bad ideas and especially so bad ideas in the church and so simon gives this i just call it the ultimate smackdown <laughs> of what spiritual warfare looks like in the church from an apologetics perspective so this the title of his talk is i don't know if this was his original title i think his original title was on spiritual warfare but whoever made this into a youtube titles it simon brace on the crisis of american protestants so we are going to listen it, to it together and we are just going to stop it and discuss it along the way because because simon's fierce man He's fierce. He does not mince words. So, we're just going to stop and listen along the way. And I hope that you enjoy this as much as I did when I heard it for the first time. I remember the first time I heard it, I thought, you know what? I want to listen to this every year. It's the same thing I said about screw tape letters that I wanted to read that every year. Neither of those have happened. However, I've started screw tape this year, and now I'm starting this one again this year. So, maybe that tradition is going to start this year, finally. <laughs> I was
1: thinking of when you were talking about as me and I get this excitement of this is going to be like screw tape loaders, where it just shows how practical these evil forces are because you do you get caught up in more of the caricature of the demons and you forget that it's it's these subtle tweaks to truth that really
0: trip people up and sometimes mm-hmm. the devil
1: is quite subtle himself.
0: Yep, they ain't no fools. They've studied philosophy way longer than we have, so we should expect that they will know how to twist it way better than we could ever do it correctly. So, without further ado, I am going to give us Simon Brace on the crisis of American Protestants, a.k.a. the role of apologetics in spiritual warfare.
2: Hard. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now that is something to think about. My talk this afternoon is going to be a talk on the, on what I think is the true nature of spiritual warfare. And I'm not going to suggest at all that this might be a comfortable talk for many of you. And I suggest that uh, you uh, would give me some grace, shall I ask for that grace from you. Um, but what I have to say this afternoon Although it might be somewhat controversial, I think that it needs to be said, and so I will stick with my conscience instead, seek not to please man, and share with you to the best of my knowledge what I've learned over the last few years, and what I'm feeling God is calling me to say this afternoon. It can be said with some confidence that one of the most confusing and misunderstood subjects in the church today concerns the nature of spiritual warfare. In this talk this afternoon, I hope to convince you that one of the most significant reasons for the failure of the church to impact the culture is in part due to this misunderstanding. The text which we are going to be working around this evening is a very familiar passage or this afternoon. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. If you can turn to your, if you have a Bible, turn to those passages. In this well-loved passage of scripture. Paul uses the military garb of a soldier to provide us with a mental picture. The human mind is finite and fallible, and our memories easily desert us. And so Paul here associates the military garb of a soldier with what is required of a believer in terms of preparing himself for spiritual warfare. It is a great teaching tool, and many in the church love to use this literary device to teach that Paul would pick a soldier as most appropriate. The Jews found themselves under the rule of the Roman Empire. There is little doubt that the people of the day would have been familiar with the uniform of the Romans, no doubt in the same manner that we are familiar with police uniforms the people we've seen out the back there, or soldiers, or firemen. The verse in the passage concerned that we are gonna focus on this afternoon is verse 12. You have probably heard many grand sermons which patiently go through all of the battle garments in specific detail, and all of this is very interesting. But unfortunately I suspect that most teachers are far too hasty in getting to the military garb before coming to terms with verse 12. Unfortunately the result is that very little consideration in my estimation is given to the study of the enemy, and the consequence that results From ignoring what is being mentioned here in verse 12. Because this verse, verse 12, has, and my Bible with me is scattered, so I'm going to have to borrow somebody. Don't know, can I borrow your Bible? Super prepared. There we go. Let's read that. Verse 12. Ephesians chapter 6, chapter 5. Okay, and this is an interesting translation, but read yours. (laughs) This is not a wrestling match against the human opponent. In fact, that's correct, because Harold Honor in his commentary says that this verse makes no mention of human forces. These are cosmic forces. We are wrestling with rulers, authority, and the powers which govern the darkness the world of darkness, the spiritual forces that control evil in the heavenly world. Not a bad translation for a pink Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, the result is that very little consideration is given to this verse. So here then is my question. If Christians do not understand the nature of war, then how is it going to be likely that we are going to know how to fight? That seems fairly obvious. The false assumption is that if we have the military garb of which Ephesians speaks, then we will know what to do with the sword and the shield and all of the other items when Satan and his cohorts show up. Christian slogans concerning spiritual warfare abound, and many of them sound terrifically pious. One of the most pious statements is, we need to preach Christ, and if necessary, Use words. These are the kinds of things that folks say, and certainly, certainly, they are not completely false. Just attempting to live a holy and pure life can be a struggle, and to do so is certainly a great witness. But rarely do these pious comments and sentiments come from Christians who, with any confidence, can tell you anything more meaningful than the obvious—that is, you ought to live as Jesus did. And combat Satan in this world. I would submit that the things you hear from many devoted Christians concerning the nature of warfare are often merely pious platitudes, platitudes and are an instance of zeal without knowledge. The truth of the matter is that these kinds of pious sentiments come in the face of evidence in the West that is contrary to the claims that we make about the church. Would you say that Christianity in the West is in a state of erosion or growth? For all of the efforts of Billy Graham and the various revivals, the church movements, the state of the Christian Union in the West is in an incremental and relentless decline.
0: I'm going to put it on pause right there because I think we need to kind of discuss that right there. The church that we are seeing right now, and especially I think this goes along with the other, the, the blogs and the other podcasts that we've done, showing how we have leaders in Christianity that are falling away. I mean, I mean, they're just dropping like flies. Yes. And if we if we want to talk about the West, we don't want to just talk about America. We want to talk about the, the actual West. Let's look over in Britain. Let's look over in France. Let's look over in Spain. Let's look over in just East, Western Europe the churches there are basically mausoleums or tombs are just, you know, considered really good architecture, but they are empty on Sunday. Boy, and I can can speak to that from
1: personal experience. My husband and I, we were stationed in Germany for seven years, and there is a respect for the church. It is something you visited. I changed a baby's diaper in the oldest church in Germany. It was built in the year 250. It was awesome. It's a trier. But among the people, religion is something that your grandmother believes in. It's not something that's practical. It's not something that's useful. Yes, you go to the church to have your weddings, but when it comes to an actual faith in God, that's just not something you do. I mean, they're very much a post-Christian culture over there to where it's just, it's not necessary anymore. And we saw that firsthand.
0: What we see happen over in the West, like as in Britain and in Western Europe, as they go, so goes America. We are the the holdout right now. But we are not holding out that great because mm-hmm. not only, I would say it, it's coming in a, di- a little bit different way. Not only do we have, I'm not saying that churches are being abandoned necessarily in the same way that they have over in the the classic West, but the doctrines of Christianity are being abandoned to where they are so unrecognizable. I, I compare it to, to cancer. Yes. When I was first diagnosed with cancer, they, they give you your staging and then they tell you if it's well differentiated or poorly differentiated. And of course, just when we hear those words, we're like, oh, well differentiated. That sounds good. Poorly differentiated. That sounds bad. And it's actually the opposite. What it means is when a cancer cell has started to, has started re- to reproduce out of control, which is essentially what cancer is. It's, it's cells that reproduce out of control. That's what the tumor is. Every single time they reproduce, they kind of uh, change slightly. It's kind of like taking a Xerox copy of something and doing another Xerox of the Xerox and another Xerox of the Xerox. Mm. And eventually you can't tell what that original Xerox was. So for something to be well differentiated means that, well, we'll just use liver, for example. That this, this liver cancer, this cancer cell that's the liver looks so different from an original liver cell that if you were just to put them on a plate, you know, next to each other, you would not even be able to recognize this was a liver cell. It is mutated beyond recognition. For something to be poorly differentiated means that they're actually still similar looking. It means you're in kind of a little bit of the early stages. It hasn't turned into this like amorphous blob of of tissue that no longer carries any any of the function that the original cell does. So, I would say instead of our decline going into just, you know, people stop going, our decline, I would say, is going into the number of ways that people are changing the gospel. And so, we're having these very well-differentiated churches in the sense that if you were to look at a first century church and what the, the ancient creeds believe, and mm-hmm. you look at that next to what the creeds of these current progressive churches believe, you'd say those do not look anything alike. No. And that is a state of progression that shows how far we have gotten from the gospel.
1: Yeah, no, I, absolutely. It's, everything has been watered down to the point where it's unrecognizable to an mm-hmm. extent. It's more of just a community meeting house with all the, all the niceties and encouragement you would like, but none of the
0: biblical substance. So let's keep uh, listening to Simon.
2: I know that some folks are more optimistic than perhaps I am, but I lived in Europe for 10 years, and I've now lived in the U.S. for nearly 8 years, and it doesn't appear to me that the church is gaining significant ground. Since we are speaking of military garb, let me keep in step with the military imagery and use military jargon and some military analogies, for that would be most appropriate. There is my opinion on the matter. By and large, the Christian battalions, and particularly those in the West, they do not look like a lean, mean fighting regiment. <laughs> Rather, they remind me more of a volunteer regiment, all the equipment in the world, but all a little fat and overweight as they squeeze into their uniforms. As with most volunteer regiments, they are certainly unfit for battle and are best kept at the base, taping boxes, and filing documents into cabinets. You see, there is far more to warfare than simply knowing which end of a gun to point at the enemy and what camouflage to wear in battle. When the U.S. has to wage war proper with folks, they do not send the volunteer regiment into battle as first choice. Rather, they deploy the Marines. Lean, well-trained, battle-ready, tough men who will have to do the tough things that most of you and I would shrink from. Our overweight regiment, volunteer regiment, does, however, have a few things going for it. It has no shortage of great preaching, publishing, and programs galore. There is no shortage of excellent retreats and conferences, many of which are very polished. At these events, you will get to hear all sorts of very important people talk about some things, some of which is important. As a result of all this talk, there is much enthusiasm in our fat Western Christian battalion. I do not want to be a cynic who claims that all of the preaching and publishing and programs is nonsense, for there is some merit to some of these activities, and in some instances, we are certainly better off with these events than not, and I would submit that I think that this conference is precisely one of those kinds of events. But do you really think that these folks, and I would include myself within that regiment, do you think that we are really ready to handle the word of truth? It is one thing to hold a sword in your hand, for any any man who has a hand can hold a sword, it's another altogether to use that sword on another man, and to take him apart with it. Have you ever attempted to play golf? Ever seen someone who can rarely use a golf club, and not merely swing it around like an idiot? <laughs> ever attempted to play a musical instrument, and then stand in the presence of someone who knows how to play a musical instrument? Between Christian warfare in theory and Christian warfare in practice, there is a significant difference. In the same manner between being merely aware of spiritual warfare and engaging in warfare effectively, there is also a world of difference. In order then to prepare to for battle, I take it that one has to deal very carefully with the nature of the warfare. After we do this, then we need to consider the battle plan and the rules of engagement. Christian warfare is not a form of terrorism. It is a form of counter-terrorism. The Christian war is not fought along a front in which the enemy's territory can be clearly defined. I wish that this were the case, but it is simply not. In addition to this, as Christians, we serve under the general, and our general is Christ, and he has decreed the rules of engagement. And I must confess to you that sometimes these rules can be a superior source of frustration because at times it often feels like these rules give our enemy an unfair advantage. Again, it is critical that we come to know the nature of the fight that we are getting ourselves into. Unfortunately, much of the efforts on the part of many Christians to engage in warfare for Christ, I think, could be compared to the charge of the Light Brigade. During the Crimean War, the Russians had moved south to fight against the Turks. The French and and the British had allied with the Turks to repel the Russians. And in this particular instance, at the Battle of Balaclava, the Russians had amassed on one end of the valley. On the sides of the valley floors, the French infantry had gathered, and the British cavalry unit was at the base of the valley. The cavalry unit was very small, but very good. The British cavalry was known for that. And there was some confusion amongst the the orders and so forth and so on. And a command was given to this man who then ordered this cavalry unit to then take off and take the guns of the Russians. And so what unfolded was very interesting. As this unit set off across the open valley floor, they charged headlong into the Russians. 20 battalions of infantrymen and 50 artillery pieces, and they proceeded to get cut down like daisies. And as this event was unfolding in the valley floor, the French field marshal looked down upon this, and he said this, this is magnificent, but this is not warfare. I would submit to you that some of that which we see in the church today is magnificent, But when folks construe this as a wonderful example of spiritual warfare, I would strongly disagree with them. Verse 12 of Ephesians is explicit in declaring that there are evil spiritual forces. The war is against the cosmic forces. Who would these cosmic forces be? I take these cosmic non-human forces to be Satan and his fellow fallen angels. And no doubt they exercise tremendous influence over men, even if men do not think that. Yeah.
1: Okay, so I love that he's pointing this out, that the spiritual forces, they are Satan and his demons. And I'm I'm just curious, Hillary, when's the last time that you ever heard a sermon on spiritual warfare and Satan and his demons?
0: Oh, I'm trying to think. It is not a common thing. Our church, the church that I go to, actually has a really healthy view of spiritual warfare. I don't know how deep they go into, because I think there's, in some ways, there's, there's... A fear of scaring the people in the pews. But at the same time, I think we use that verse, our our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the authorities of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we've got that memorized, but really understanding what we are doing with that, that we are fighting against a spiritual battle of actual demons Mm -hmm. that are out there for our destruction. It's almost... I don't want to almost say that it's not politically correct, but in some ways it's like, well, we don't really want to look at all that. That's a little too dark for us. But I, at the same time, we are, like he's saying, we are not being prepared for what is actually out there.
1: Yeah. No, I would completely agree. I'm thinking back. We may have heard a sermon on spiritual warfare way back when we were in Germany. And I mean, gosh, this was eight years ago or so. But again, these topics, especially this one on spiritual warfare, it's often people don't delve deeply into it. And part of it, I wonder if there is a bit of sort of church embarrassment on this idea. Like, oh, you know, when we start talking about demons, that sounds a little, you know- Like we're talking about the boogeyman kind right, of thing. Right, yeah. Or like we're starting to go off the deep end, start dancing with snakes or something. And <laughs> so I think, I, I totally agree when he's talking about the nature of warfare part of that is knowing your enemy. I mean, that's, that's yeah. the best way that my husband, he deployed. I, I got out of the military before I deployed and I never got to go. But when they would go for debriefing, it was, okay, this is what we're going against. This is what we're expecting. They will let them know, okay, at these bases, there's often nightly raids. They have rockets that go and attack. These are what the people are going to be doing. They wanted the folks who were deploying to understand who the enemy was, the nature of the enemy, because then you can start sort of thinking ahead on what could be their their next move. It is almost a bit of a of a chess match is okay, if I can understand who this person is, I can start to maybe expect, potentially predict, or at least I can know maybe where the attack is coming. And I totally agree with Simon here. The church, I think, is they are very good at maybe saying, well, here's some some tough stuff that's out there, but they're not maybe going in as deeply as to okay, this is the true nature of the enemy and really diving in on that for like you said, you know, not to get into the whole dark stuff and scare people. Yeah,
0: there's a particular movie that I think of called Ender's Game. Have you ever oh, seen? Oh, I haven't Game? the new one. No, I haven't seen that one yet. It looked really good. What do you mean the new one? It's like years old. Is it? <sighs> it Harrison Ford? Is that one? Is that really that old? Uh, he's in it. He's in it. It's it's several years old. But the the, the, the Orson Scott Card is the is the author. I read the book. I haven't
1: seen the I haven't seen the movie though.
0: Yeah, it was written in the eighties, and it was so before its time. But I think that uh, if you watch that movie, I think it's I think it's fine for kids that are eight to twelve, you know, and older. I still enjoy it as an adult. I don't, I can't remember if there's swearing since we don't have kids in the house. A lot of times, it's like you just kind of tune that out. Their entire training is around learning their enemy, mm. and, and you don't even just see this in this movie. If if anyone who has uh, done any kind of collegiate sports knows that you have times where you watch films, where you're studying the players, your opponents, that you're going to be going against. And there's this line, I think, from Ender's Game. I think it's in the book and it's in the movie. And I'll see if I can remember it. He says that when you finally know your enemy as they know themselves, then you love them. And at the same time, that's when you can defeat them. Mm. And so it's this idea of knowing them so well. It's like you have to be able to predict what they're going to do. I want to mention right now a book that I recommend with hesitancy. I recommend it with hesitancy because I do not recommend the author in any way. I would suggest staying away from this author basically all the time. I do not think he comes from a healthy uh, ministry, but there's this one book that he has written and I would even just say like the first third. It felt like the first third, like he was really receiving from the Lord and then the rest of it. I was like, ah, it seems like he tried to recreate what was going on. But it's one of the best analogies for spiritual warfare, even beyond screw tape letters. And it's called The Final Quest. And it's written by Rick Joyner. He was one of the ones from Morningstar Ministries, which again, is not a ministry that I recommend. There's a lot of, um, you know, we are the Lord's anointed. If you say anything to disagree with us, then you're disagreeing with the Lord's anointed and you need to be shunned kind of stuff that goes on in that ministry. I don't even know if they're they're active anymore. But this book, The Final Quest, has this one scene that I think is uh, really important. He is picturing this, this, this battle that's going on. And it's like this mountain that has these different levels. And each, like, the very first level is salvation. The very next level is grace. And the third level, it's like each one of these has kind of like a level. And he sees kind of different denominations that are camped out on these levels. And he realizes that while he had been judgmental in the past for these different denominations camping out on this one concept, that he realizes now that that was part of the design of the body of they were defending that one tenet. In that sense, I think uh, Simon's thing uh, says on the crisis of American Protestants, that there is one place that you will go to hear sermons that really go into spiritual warfare, and that will be in the charismatic realms. And I think there's a lot of ways that the charismatics take it too far. You know, you've got the charismatics and then you've got the charismaniacs. And it was one of those things that were growing up, I was almost taught to fear charismatics. They're all weird. They're all, you know, wacky. They're all, they're all speaking in tongues at the same time. And it's just chaos, 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 you know. But I have learned to really appreciate some of the things that they do well. And one of the things they do do well is prayer. In spiritual warfare. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to point that out when we said, you know, when's the last time we heard it, you know, we haven't heard it. And I'm like, well, you know, I think there's some den- den- denominations where they have heard it, whether or not they treat it well, every time, you know, whatever, whatever our kind of pet project is, we're probably going to go too far on it and probably present it unbalanced. So that's just the nature of people. I just wanted to point that out. So do you have anything else to say or do you want to keep Oh, no, on? I, w- I would agree that.
1: Yeah, you wouldn't. That makes perfect sense that you would hear that more in the charismatic circles. And perhaps maybe that's why we don't hear it so much in the Protestants because, well, you know, they take things a little too far. And we have a tendency as peoples, when we see people going way off track, that we tend to overcorrect in the opposite yes. direction. And I think that mm-hmm. can be part of the problem.
0: And I think that's really where spiritual maturity comes in is when you start learning what different groups bring to the table and how that those are legitimate and that's where you really have to take your chew and spit mm-hmm. you have to recognize that they're going to have some some information some knowledge that i really haven't learned some of it might not be totally biblical so that's the stuff i need to spit but i need to have an open mind and say is there something that they're that they are camping out on that is biblical that the the denomination that i've been with has completely shut off just cuz they're so terrified of going down the wrong wit road with it but they won't go down that road at all. No, absolutely. Got to
1: start putting in that roar to work and figuring out which stuff is the good and dispel the bad and
0: go on from there. Exactly. Okay, we'll continue on with Simon.
2: God, as we have found out in First John five nineteen, has given control of this world over to Satan. And we need to come to terms with that as Christians because when we walk out of these doors, we all know how difficult it really is. It is like Omaha Beach. The bullets start flying once you get out there, and it's relentless. It doesn't stop. Christian, you are behind enemy lines. Many of the mainstream views on the nature of warfare are extremely vague and nebulous. And this does little to help us in this battle. Satan is messing with people, therefore the world is messed up. But we know that. But how is the enemy messing things up in this world? How is the prince of darkness engaging in battle? What precisely are these principalities and powers up to? I do believe that we need to have some clearer answers to these questions if we are to be more effective in our efforts at at combating the evil spiritual forces. And I would certainly take a lot more confidence in knowing what to do with all of this military equipment of which Paul speaks if it can be first established what the nature of the battle is like. Unsurprisingly, the enemy has many tactics. So to begin with, we need to be wary of a reductionistic view of the battle. What am I talking about here? What I am saying is there's no one silver bullet to fix all the problems. As with many other vices in evangelicalism, reductionism is a pious ailment, a poisonous ailment that we suffer from. Evangelicals are often trying to distill or reduce everything to one thing or a few things because they want the silver bullet bullet to fix all problems. We see this in our evangelism models. Learn these many laws or have this many laws. Stick with that and that's going to work on all people. And we see it elsewhere in various other programs in the church. All of Satan's efforts need to be dealt with, both those that are innocuous or mild and those which are more severe. I do believe that in some instances that some Christians are correctly diagnosing some of the problems. But but diagnosing an illness does not remedy the situation. It is what happens after the diagnosis that matters. It must also be remembered that as with terrorists, the enemy does not have rules of engagement and therefore for him anything goes. I am convinced that some aspects of this cosmic battle serve as a smokescreen to hide work that Satan would rather not have us concern ourselves with. He is, after all, a deceiver of the highest order, and deception is one of his primary weapons. I suspect his methodology can be compared to some extent by that employed by the Allies in World War II. In North Africa, when the Allies were fighting the Germans, they recruited a a man who joined the Royal Engineers, a man by the name of Jasper Masculin. And he was a stage musician. And with his team, they would go around building fake things, fake towns with fake anti-aircraft batteries and fake houses and, and fake pipelines and roads and buildings. And at night, they would switch the lights off in the main places, the one bay in Alexander. And so when the German bombers came overnight, they would see the lights in the distance and they would go and bomb this fake town. Brilliant. In 1942, he worked on Operation Bertram at a significant battle, and his task was to confuse the German Field Marshal Rommel in thinking that the attack was coming from the south, when the British General Montgomery planned to attack from the north. So in the north, he took a thousand tanks and disguised them as trucks. And in the south, they created 2,000 fake tanks. And so, of course, the Germans turned all of their equipment to face what were fake tanks that turned and fled into the distance, when behind them what they thought was transport and trucks turned out to be a thousand tanks. Brilliant deception. What is important about this analogy is not to think that some of this deception is not warfare, because it certainly is. We have to concern ourselves with all of the strategies, including those of deception. But if you think Jasper Maskelyne was good at deception, consider how good the father of deception, Satan, is. What then is my point? In my estimation, the evangelical church is often raining down bombs on cardboard tanks. We think that we are engaging the enemy when for the most part we are attending to a distraction. I look at evangelical efforts and the words of the field French field marshal come to mind. This is magnificent, but this is not warfare. Let us be honest, Europe has by and large been lost. And large swathes of the U.S. are falling. I've worked in the northeast of this country. It's very much like Europe. The skepticism that saturates the northeast of this country is much like the skepticism which you find in Europe. And still, the evangelical church leadership in the West has, for the most part, their heads in the sand with respect to this phenomena. And even for those who claim to know something... They seem powerless to counteract the steady erosion of Christianity.
0: I kind of want to stop it there and talk about what he was talking about, how we have this enemy that is deceptive. And this is where John and I have lots of conversations about this concept of friendly fire Mm. amongst Christians. Have you noticed this?
1: I've seen it before to where if there is maybe a certain view of let's say the age of the earth or something. Mm-hmm. And someone has, maybe they are an old earth and then you've got the young earth. And all of a sudden they start going in at each other pulling this whole no true Scotsman fallacy of, well, you're not really a Christian if you believe this. And you start just sort of tearing each other apart for secondary issues. And mm-hmm. that's personally where I've witnessed it just in within our small churches that we've attended. But you see it sometimes on social media too, to where you'll have somebody who maybe has a different view, and all of a sudden, they're just getting ambushed on Twitter. And it's like, really? Is, is this what we're going to focus our time on?
0: I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen it with the age of the earth. I've seen it on the uh, reform versus non-reform theology. Mm-hmm. I've even seen it. And this is one of the ones that drives me nuts as much as I love, well, I won't see where it comes from, but this belief in Molinism, oh. uh, which is propounded by William Lane Craig. And in terms of it, it deals with divine foreknowledge. We won't go into it right now, but... Where people, I've seen them making these things hills to die on. Yeah. And I'm like, you realize you're fighting against your own brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. It's like we have created these, in in our minds, we have elevated these secondary issues to be so big that they are like, what the, I mean, I believe the enemy is totally behind it. It is a giant town that looks like it's dangerous and you truly feel like you are defending the one true religion when you are just failing in having unity over secondary issues. What, what is that that phrase from one of the creeds? It's like important things, unity, and in all things, charity. How does that go? Oh, I, I don't know. I haven't heard that one. Well, it's along those lines of just, uh, you know, having unity in the important things in charity, in, in the things that are, that are secondary. And I see two problems going on right now. Number one is I see Christians that are fighting each other over secondary issues but the second problem i see is that people are so it's turned into the boy who cried wolf they're so tired of seeing christians fight each other over secondary issues that they fail to speak up when it comes to primary issues issues like the blood atonement of christ issues like that jesus physically rose from the dead that his it, it was god's will for him to come to die to pay for our sins And this is a lot of the stuff that you'll see in the progressive church, but people are so tired of the infighting that when it comes time to fight over something that really does matter, that is a hill to die on, they're silent. And I also believe that that's part of the enemy's tactic is if he gets you so tired of one thing, you know, the the boy who cried wolf, oh, we're so tired of hearing the boy cry wolf that when the wolf actually comes, nobody cares. And that is what we've seen happen within the church. I mean, we see divisions over the dumbest things in the world, you know, <laughs> carpet and draperies and pews versus chairs and all sorts of things. And I have to imagine that the enemy is jumping up and down for joy.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you can have a house divided against itself, I mean, it's going to crumble fast. And that would be the quickest way to take down the enemy's enemy, so to speak, the Christians, is to have them so focused on themselves and attacking these minor issues that they Mm -hmm. can't even, they're not even able to defend against these bigger attacks or they just don't. And it's interesting that you mentioned the progressive church because you do, you see that to where they, it's become this, this appeal to emotionalism. And we just want everybody to feel good that we're not going to give any teachings that might maybe upset someone or upset kids or that sort. I remember there was an article about, oh, this gal didn't even want anyone teaching about the resurrection because again, that why would we talk about somebody dying? That's so sad to children. Let's just avoid that altogether. And yeah. it's it reminds me a bit of my homet class in junior high. Is <laughs> it's funny because you know, there, our teacher were there, you know, we're a bunch of eighth graders around ovens and knives. But the one that she always talked about is she goes, Look, I'm not so much worried about you guys handling the knives. It's the, the butter knives that I'm most worried about. And we all thought that was so odd. And she goes, look, people are more careful with the sharp knives, but it's the, the more duller knives that people are sort of lulled into thinking that, well, this isn't as dangerous because it's not as sharp and they'll go at uh, things. And she says, people get wounded more often from these duller butter knives than they are the sharp ones because the sharp ones, they're aware that it's, they're aware that it's a problem, but the butter Mm -hmm. knives, people will just start hacking at things and end up cutting themselves pretty good because they're unaware that there's still a threat there. And you see that kind mm. of Simon mentions that, that we're sort of lulled into this. We don't expect the enemy to come in this way. We don't see this sort of mild deceptions. And we see that creeping into the church.
0: And I think also that what we're doing is we're seeing all these battles as personalities mm. instead of, you know, that this, that we we have taken it and said, this is against flesh and blood. This is a personality issue and we need to you know, work this out, you know, from different personalities, how can we have peace on this? And we don't say, no, this is a tactic of the enemy that has come here to distract yes. from the actual issue. And we refuse to let him distract us from the actual issue. It's a kind of self-awareness and it's a kind of just spiritual awareness that I don't think comes naturally for a lot of people. And again, I think that's on purpose. I think this is probably where Screwtape talks about it, you know, how to I think in in Screwtape, one of the things he says is it's funny how everybody thinks that our job is to put things in their heads when actually our biggest job is to keep things out of their heads. Oh, my gosh, that's brilliant. And like, you know, just keep us from recognizing this. This is what's actually going on. That's the real that's the real battle that's going on. So I think we're going to probably make this a three-parter series. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip the prayer at the end of each of these just because I really want to be able to go seamlessly between them. So any parting words before we start on part two on this, Amy? No, just stay tuned. This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com. We hope you
1: learned a little more about how to sift through ideas, accept the good, reject the bad, and now you can go teach your kids to do the same.
0: Do you have any questions or maybe some ideas about
1: future podcast episodes? Send us an email to Bears at gmail.com and we'll do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears.
0: We are all in this together.